Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like an advocate. Oh, I love that feeling. And today's guest is someone that I met in September for the first time, actually here in New York City. Um, we met through a friend of ours called Scott Campbell. And um, you've also been to the studio before. because How long have you known the artist? Last year, I came to do a studio visit. And also, we sat next to each other on the back of the ferry coming from Fire Island back to the mainland Really? Uh, last year because I was shooting an American Horror Story over there. Oh, yeah. And we came back at the same time. And it was just us on the back of the boat, I think. And it was uh, pretty... It was pretty special. We had a big old chat about it all, about life and what was going on. And here we are again in your studio. And today's guest's work is very singular and very unique in many ways. Mm. And I'm so excited that we're actually in the studio here in Ridgewood right now, which is pretty epic. We've just come over the bridge into Brooklyn, into Queens. And um, it was yeah. good for us because we're both Queens. And there's, we are both Queens. <laughs> and there's a really sweet smell in this studio. And I was, I was like, is it the resin that's involved or is it the blood which is involved? And I think it is probably the blood because today's guest is an artist who has been exploring the aesthetic and the ethics of blood as an artistic medium since the late 1990s. And um, he currently has a show on in Missouri, uh, in Springfield, which has a centerpiece of this incredible um, artwork, which we will be discussing uh, within the episode. So right now, we will welcome him to the show so we can get talking about the art itself. But we would like to welcome to Talk Art... Jordan, Jordan Eagles. Eagles. Hi, Jordan. Hello. Thanks Thank you for, guys um, so much for coming to the studio. Of course. What, what, what does it feel like to have people in your studio? You are someone that's very welcoming to studio yeah, visits. I, I definitely, I like having studio visits. Uh, I'm not quite used to having studio visits with microphones <laughs> and sound equipment, but I do love having people experience the work in person because that is how the, the work is meant to be experienced. Do you feel like the work's activated by an audience? I think the works are activated on their own, but the, you know, there's an energy inherent with the material. And so I think that the works, I mean, when the lights are off and no one's 
around to, to experience the work. The work still exists and is vibrating a certain energy, but for a viewer to encounter the piece, uh, experience the organic material in the way it's preserved and see the light moving through the many layers is something that uh, doesn't quite translate in photographs. Uh, and also, uh, I think there's a certain energy that comes from blood that is uh, primal and really is something that uh, requires or is better when a person is in front of it. So for everybody listening, the organic material you're talking about, you just mentioned it, is, is blood. Yes. Blood is something that you have discovered as an artist as uh, a material that you can work with. You know, people coming to your work will, the color red is obviously of blood or vermilion to yeah. be more specific, is something that is, when I think of you, I think of that color. And then I think of blood. And I don't, I don't know many artists, I'm sure there are, and you'd probably be able to tell us, who use blood, whether that be animal or human, in their work. I know Mark Quinn had the bloodhead. That was something I think that was the, that was around in the nineties, but I can't really think of anything else. But well, Hermann Nietzsche oh, used, yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, not just blood, but also, uh, organs and the, the, the inside of the animals. Uh, I mean, blood also is, you can trace it back to, um, biblical mark making. I mean, it, it goes that far back as, 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 a, as a material used to mark and make marks. So, I mean, it has a long history. I like, mean, Serrano like, used... What do you mean biblical? Like, on like people's you know, front Mo doors Moses or is that the front door thing? putting blood right? on, the, on the front door and, you know, like, or even looking at, um, you know, cave drawings. You know, it's something that, can, that you can look back and see the usage of blood, uh, specifically animal blood, uh, as a as a tool for mark making, but obviously there have been artists that have used it. Serrano, Damien Hirst, Damien Hirst, uh, Anna Mendieta. Oh right, yeah, of yeah. course. Um, you mentioned Mark Quinn. Not a lot of people, I don't think, use blood. Um, so when did you go? Well, that's what I need. Did you cut yourself at some point and think, oh, hang on a minute, this can, this can go on a canvas? When did you think no. that this, when did blood enter your kind of materiality for your it practice? It started in 1998. Uh, I was looking through a medical encyclopedia and came across these four images of childbirth. And they were black and white line drawings, very sterile. The mother, it's the first images of a mother with... Her, Look, you know, legs open, and then the next one is like, you know, it's it's just like this this four drawing sequence uh, where at the third image is the crap the baby's head crowning. But all along, it's like, it's almost like if you can imagine uh, images that you might see in an airplane pamphlet for like emergency exits, like emotionless kind of sterile drawings and. Um, I'm very close with my mother and under, you know, was told that birth is a very bloody experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those images just struck me as unauthentic. There was something not how I understood birth to be. And this was the moment that 
in theory, you know, at the time at least is how I was thinking about it or exploring like the moment at which we're entering the, the world. And simultaneously I was having um, like deep philosophical conversations with my best friend about the idea of body and spirit being connected or are they separate or where is the soul in relation to your body? Is it inside of you? Is it like part, like what, what is the, what is, where is this body spirit connection? And so we were having that debate and then these images, I stumbled upon them. And so I decided to use these images as a way to further the debate that we were having. Uh, and so I started dripping like red paint on this and put these images. Yeah. I yeah. took, I took the images and transferred them to acetate and cut yeah. them out and fixed them to, um, a, a canvas. I actually have them right over there. I'll show you. Yeah, I can show, show you them. So an acetate is like a, a clear plastic, like yeah. uh, paper, isn't like it? A, yeah. It's like, drafting film in a way and um, what they put on projectors if they're writing on a projector that's what you well, this was a see. matte finish one right oh, but right. i took like a like a black sharpie and you know the whole, what i was you know i i fixed it to the canvas on top of images like it was just sort of a way of but i was dripping red paint and then was sitting with my friend greg and saying you know but like you look at the way the blood is dripping this way and like just talking about the red paint as though it was blood and he said to me jordan that is not, that's not blood, that's red paint. And I was like, uh, oh, yes, that's, that's correct. Uh, and meanwhile, these pieces were just completely flat and they weren't, it wasn't, they were not good artworks at that moment. Uh, so I like, the light went off where I was like, oh yes, we're trying to be symbolic of this material that I'm like so, wanting that, I don't know, whatever charge that is, but I took a bunch of gesso and kind of covered up all the red paint marks and then went down to Chinatown and bought a pint of pig's blood and went back to those pieces and just the very first drip of, it, I, I can still remember, I mean, just it moved down the canvas and it just felt alive in a way that red paint just it's it's like blood is definitely not paint mm. you can paint with it it's but it's living, not paint. It's living isn't it? it 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 is living and what what happened which sort of prompted the next sort of phase because i didn't go into this thinking First of all, I, I wasn't even um, thinking, oh, I'm going to try to be an artist or I'm an artist. Like, that wasn't even... So what was you doing at this point then? I was, in, I was at NYU. Uh, and it was just... I mean, really, I probably majored in, like, New York City nightlife at the time. I mean, really, <laughs> I was just running around having really just... Just the best... <laughs> just the best time. Uh, but what were you studying at NYU then, if you wasn't... Well, I was in the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, so you really got to just make your own major. So I wasn't doing... I was doing a bit of business, a bit of media studies, and then I was taking some, uh, like, like basic independent study courses on art, like intro to drawing and intro to painting and intro to video art, right, right, right. just all these 
different like what do I like, like a, intro like to a, photography like a, a moose bouche like a taste yeah. of taste <laughs> but, board, yeah. right but not with art students you know just sort of just any anyone in NYU could take those courses oh, kind right, of vibe. Right. Um, but in any event the color of the blood from a very vivid red changed to brown in a matter of three months oh. and so that was a bit at the time, disappointing to me. Now I look at them and I, I, I love the memory of this whole process, right? They're just my first, my first blood works, right? <laughs> but uh, I th- then thought, well, how, what, what could I do to have kept that color, that vivid red color? And so I spent many years experimenting uh, and, and developed a technique in which the organic material is you know, fully preserved such that the colors, the textures uh, of the blood will not change over time. And I, that also then opened up a whole additional sequence of um, explorations based on thinking about, well, if, you're, if you know, many cultures believe that the body and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit are connected as one. And so if you are in fact preserving the body, the blood, the life force, are you also preserving the spirit? Mm-hmm. Is there spirit actually like, so these kinds of questions ultimately I think were a bit more abstract. I mean, going back to those first four birth paintings, like the, the desire was really to try and get as close to understanding like where am I in all of this? Yeah. And I think through the preservation, it brought me to a more abstract place. Like I started getting into abstraction and thinking about blood as a life force that has universal, universal energy. And then the work started taking on a more, like a more cosmic uh, approach where something could look like, a supernova, an explosion, explosion of energy, or at the same time, um, uh, like a, a moon phase or a cellular detail of a cell, mm. like a, you know, molecular. So it's like this, the micro macro, the connection between something being, you know, something very cellular to something being, um, the Big Bang, the big to, bang. To, to, to the tiniest atom. Right? Exactly. Like the big, and I still, to this day, work on pieces that are, uh, I call them energy pieces, where they are, you know, it's like, uh, it is like the Big Bang, or it's like looking into the head of a volcano looking down. Like it's still, oh wow, you know, it has that sort of like the inner blood of the planet, the lava. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the idea of like um, capturing that within the artwork. So it's almost like... Um, you know, sometimes you find amber and, and it almost feels like there's this moment in time that's been distilled and captured in amber or, or when you find like a dinosaur um, claw or something in a stone or something. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I totally or know Or if you, mean. you find a fly that's been caught in amber yeah. and then you, you've got that kind of moment of history. I really like Park, that in yeah. your work, yeah. But um, how, so in a practical level, what was that experimentation you were doing? Was it, is it resin? Like how, how are it's you... It's a UV resin. A UV resin, yeah. okay. And so one of the things that... Um, I mean, there was a lot that came, I mean, it came out of it from a technical standpoint, you know, but resin, first of all, it's like a very temperamental and difficult material to actually use. Mm. But 
it also has like the capabilities of layering, and it also has uh, a really great way of, of casting light. So ultimately, what started happening is that um, I started constructing the works in a way where when light is, when a work is spotlit, it casts the light through the piece and it looks as though it's internally lit, so it's sort of glowing back out. Yeah, it does, you're right. But that's, that's, so that is from, yeah, because you're, you're lighting it from the front, but yet it does feel like it's coming from behind yeah, it or inside it. what's actually happening is, so half the works are translucent. Uh, and so, for example, like this work is translucent and what's actually happening is the light is going through the piece, hitting the work and casting the light and the patterns and the shadows of the work back onto the wall, creating an additional layer that's on the wall. And then it looks as though it's coming back out at you. And so it's just a way that you can, um, I mean, that was one of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 one of the unintentional effects of using resin as a preservation tool was that it also became a way of learning about light and layering. And that, I think, fit really well with the themes that I was trying to explore of that sort of the inner light within us, like the idea of soul and spirit. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, trying to convey this material um, that, you know, in the works that I use, you know, it's, it's, it's now, I, I mean, I've been using cattle blood that the first works were Chinatown and pig's blood, but now it's, I mean, it's been cattle blood ever since. Um, I mean, aside from the works that are done in human blood, but that's a diff whole different, we'll get to, we'll get to that's that. a whole different side of the, my work. But when you did these, the birthing drawings and you use the pig's blood, and then you said just now that that's when you realize, oh, I can be an artist or I am an artist. What, what was the process of then going, okay, this is, this is my vocation. This is what I'm going to do. Well, that didn't happen at that point. That was still, um, that was still, no, I mean, there was many years of exploration because it wasn't, I didn't know how to preserve. I was, it was still really experimental. I mean, like some of those early sequence of works after those, I mean, they're just all over the place in terms of like technique. And I mean, I love them for the experimentation uh, and the usage of materials and what I was trying to do. And, it, you know, but they were not, they were very unrefined pieces. Uh, and I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was inventing my own thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think it was, it was probably around 2008 when I really felt like I understand what I'm, what I'm creating, like how, how to create, how to technically to create them, like understanding, you know, the various, like, so for example, when you see, a, 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 I don't know, a, a, I'll see, I'm just trying to see if I have a good example. Okay, here's a good example. So you see this sort of crackle, there's this sort of crackle pattern that's existing. Yeah. So the way in which patterns um, generate is how you layer blood uh, at various stages of the resin's cure time and then the age of the blood. So oh, it's I like see. different... It's scientific. It's a bit scientific, <laughs> yeah. yes. It's well, so the older the blood is, it, it the has... The darker a, it will get. 
Right. So there's a piece up up in the other room that's like that, you know, you, and so I could, that's a really the front in the front. There's a really prime example of um, the different patterns that are, you know, like the fractal patterns within the blood. And that uh, has to do with um, how you layer blood onto resin at, re at what point of resin's cure time. Resin takes, you know, anywhere from six to 10 hours, depending on how hot you keep your studio. I tend to keep my studio at 90 degrees, the workspace. Would you ever refer to nurses and doctors about blood transfusions and what, what the materiality of what blood can do or does do in situations like that for your own sort of knowledge of what this material does? Mm, well, I, I have worked with um, phlebotomists and medical supervisors for uh, drawing the blood from the donors from, you know, all the, the queer blood works. And, you know, one of the things that is very important is um, making sure that the tubes and the bags are um, heparin, like heparin, which is an anticoagulant because blood coagulates. And so, um, you know, it's really crucial that that blood you know, the human blood in the... What does that mean, though? That means it just thickens and... So if you were to, for example, um, put blood in a certain, like a tube that did not have a heparin-lined tube, that blood over, like, very quickly would just start to coagulate. Like, it becomes a scab, essentially, right? Oh, like, wow. your blood coagulates. Well, that's, you know, that's where hemophiliacs, are, it's very dangerous if they bleed because it doesn't scab, right? So this is where, you know, it's a natural process. And so, you know, for the purpose of art making, though, you want to make sure that the, this precious material is, stays liquid. So like with animal blood, for example, like I'll take all the blood, I'll break down the gallons. I get the blood from a slaughterhouse and then I break, I break the, that, those gallons into smaller pint size containers that then get, gets frozen. And then I defrost it as needed. And then I also have a method of recycling the blood and then creating pigments out of that dried recycled blood, which I'll show you. That's that section over there of the well, studio oh yeah. where I sort of make um, like a blood dust. They're out of these like rock. They're basically like I cultivate blood rocks that then get put into a coffee grinder that then gets turned into a powder that then gets mixed with fresh blood that then the application of that creates black so for the longest time... And you've worked this out all yourself. This is stuff that you've just sort of come yeah. to from your own volition, from experimenting. Yes, it's all experimentation. Do you know anyone else who's sort of doing this? Uh, not personally, I don't. Wow. <laughs> and what is the health and safety of, of using animals' blood? We, we get onto the human side of stuff, but what is for you as an artist who's dealing with this stuff with your hands, breathing in, I don't know, is there certain things that you have to be careful of i imagine so right you've been fine so far i've been fine so far i mean you know i, I do think a bit you know does a butcher what does a butcher do right like yeah, yeah you yeah. know i mean i work i actually think that the 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 biggest um precaution that i take actually has to do with the use of resin mm. right with that like i you know first of all resin is um heat it's a heat the, the, the chemical process creates a lot of heat. Uh, and so, but you don't feel it immediately. So for example, like because my studio is 90 degrees when I'm re like in the process of working, 
I usually am wearing a pair of cutoff shorts and sneakers, right? I don't typically have a shirt on. I wear um, a baseball cap to catch the sweat so it doesn't drip in the, because sweat dripping into a work as it's, you know, the, you can't let water go into the resin. What, what will happen? Well, it, it's not good for the resin. You'll get, you know, it, it just will kill. It, it, it does, you know, makes the, it could make the, the, the resin foggy. Oh, right. It's like, you, you know, re, again, resin is like the most temperate. But the point is, is that if you, for example, get like when I'm working, it's like the pouring of the resin. You have to like make sure you don't get it on your on your. I mean, every once in a while you'll get resin on your leg, on your on your calf or something and have no idea. And then you're like, like 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, what's happening here? And you realize like, oh, shit, it's kind of it's kind of hot oh, no. because it's heat. Right. Huh? And then you like you have to quickly go wipe it off, whatever. Or so like in that sense, I feel like resin is the thing that is most like I like stupid tricks, you know, like I'll triple glove myself when I'm wearing, um, when I'm working with resin, like three sets of gloves at once, because like, when your hands start to get really sweaty, good luck getting a second pair of gloves on. So you need to have multiple pairs of gloves. Right. So that way you're working, you can rip off the first pair and then be prepped for the second pair. So it's very like, in a way, like when you see doctor shows and like the nurses are putting, you know, the, <laughs> the aprons on, everything's like really prepared. I find that like the use of resin and then the, of course there's the respirator mask that I wear. I was going to say, because in the 70s or 60s, there were artists who were making work who ended up getting really ill from the materials they were making their sculptures out of. Right. I think even like Ava Hesse, yeah. maybe, who is somebody that I keep thinking about when I see your work because of the physicality of when you're like looking at your paintings is similar to the physicality. Sam Fowl got lung yes. issues from using all the, the, what do you call that, fiberglass. Yeah, exactly, because they would inhale stuff, all that stuff. So it's really good these days that there are, A, materials that are made that aren't as toxic, and also everyone's got more knowledge of, like, wearing a, what is it, like a mask or, yeah. or gloves or what have you. Yeah. Are you, are you squeamish? Like, like, or have you got less squeamish as you've been working with blood? Like, if you suddenly cut yourself accidentally, do you, like, I probably, I panic when I cut myself. Do you panic less than you might have done before all of this? <laughs> well, I don't like pain. So that's not, I mean, I'm not squeamish of blood. Uh, I also don't like gore. I don't like horror movies. I don't like, I mean, I tried watching American Horror Story because you were in it and I thought, all right, let me give this a go, you know? And then that one scene where the, you know, serial killer has that, you know, that one scene where the people are in that, I was like, all right, this is getting old. This is getting really a bit disturbing. You were great in it. But Thank like, you it so was much, getting Jordan. really disturbing for yeah, me, yeah, you know, yeah. cause like, I don't like seeing, um, I don't like seeing pain. I don't like seeing suffering. I don't like, um, gore for the sake of entertainment. Uh, I understand why. I think that I also, I mean, I think probably, you know, for your average horror fan who does like to see gore and slasher films, they probably also aren't working with blood every day. So, you know, I think the fact that I am actually working with this material, I might prefer just like a romantic comedy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, when you, when you get out of the studio, you need a break from it. Yeah, but I also don't think that the work that I don't, I also don't treat the work like people might imagine, like, you know, we're in this place right now and like, doesn't really seem overly gory. No, it doesn't at all. Right. I mean, I think, but also I think your intentions were more about energy, soul. They're yeah. all the things you're talking about. Yeah. And actually it's a profound thing when you're stood in front of your works. Cause I've actually never stood in front of them. I've only seen them in images and you do start to think about what's under your own skin. You know, yes. like there's this real, like 
visceral, very intense response I'm having, even if it is animal blood in these works. Like, I know it's not the blood that's within me, but it's still, we have the blood. Mm -hmm. And there's something very strong about that. It's really like, I can't even quite express what it is. Yeah, you know, to see it encapsulated, knowing that at the same time it's running through our own bodies right now, it's quite strange. Yeah, it's intense. The work... You know, if you came to work and you, you didn't know these are beautiful objects in their own right and incredibly skillful, but for you, there's true activism behind your whole practice that runs through the choices of the work you make. Yeah, that, that was... In 2013, there was a moment where I started thinking like if it was possible to create work that could raise more awareness about issues that were important to me, that were political, social, uh, and if it could naively think about even the idea of shifting policy. Like mm -hmm. could, art have a, could art actually have a way of being utilized in such a way that it could help change discriminatory policy. And so, you know, it, it was a natural, there is a level of activism for sure in it, but I don't think of myself as an activist. I think that a lot of the people I've worked with are activists. It was a definitely a, like a turn in the road that I did, did not expect. It wasn't as though I was thinking when I, you know, if I go back from the the origin, first origin birth paintings through 2013. I mean, there's a lot of work that was made that was hyper-spiritual. Like that was my, that was my, my everything. And then in 2013, I began to, yes, ponder other questions. Um, you know, gay and bisexual men who have sex with men are for the most part unable to donate blood uh, it's been a policy that has been instituted by the fda since 1983 yeah during the aids epidemic uh, and has gone through various changes in the policy over the many decades most recently may of this past year uh, every step of the way when policy is changed, it is continues to be discriminatory, it continues to be biased, it continues to position members of the LGBT community as diseased, dirty, unsafe, higher risk. There's just like a whole, and mostly none of this is backed 100% by science. Uh, it still perpetuates a horrible stigma. And so I thought, well, maybe what would happen if I create artwork that addresses these issues? What could possibly occur? Uh, and it was, I don't know, it's been really an interesting journey, that's for sure. And I mean, it still, I guess, carries on, even though the world has, even though policies have changed, there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. Mm. I mean, I used the word advocate in the introduction because I feel like that was a slightly more accurate description somehow rather than just activism. Yeah. It, it felt like because I feel like your work and your exhibitions, including the one that's currently in Springfield, um, 
create a space for other people to have agency and to find, like for me even, like I've found that I've discovered you know, the way that I feel about a lot of these laws, even though they're not in my, my own country per se. They are. Oh, they are, I know. But I was about to say, but then it made me realise what's going on in, 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 in our country as well. So it's made me look at political issues, you know, that weren't American ones, because it's actually quite a universal stigma and a universal um, persecution of LGBT people. So what I was trying to say is it's like a universal discussion out of the American discussion that you began, if you see what I mean. And I found that really interesting, this idea that you're able to, as an artist to empower individuals to suddenly realise what what they feel about their rights that have been taken away from them. And that's a really beautiful thing to be able to do that through creativity. Thank you. I mean, it, it, it's one of those... the the. the the queer blood works obviously require queer men to donate their blood. And so, you know, you know, and for example, um, the very first queer blood project was called the blood mirror project. And it is a sculpture that is, that preserves the blood of 59 blood donations from gay, bi and trans men. And it was wonderful to connect with these people, all these men who also felt so passionately about gay men's health and uh, equality issues and were willing to, beyond just, like they were willing to show up and roll up their sleeve and donate blood for an art project. And so they became the voices of this, like these works don't exist without all of these individuals and all the individuals who helped connect me to those individuals. I mean, it really became like a very massive um, undertaking that I didn't, you know, that is a to like a thousand percent um, collaborative. Like the first thing with that was connecting with uh, a core group of artists to work with. So I partnered up uh, with this really talented um, writer and filmmaker named Leo Herrera. And then there was uh, the Carrie Nation, which is a, a DJ duo here in New York, made, uh, comprised of uh, Will Automagic and uh, DJ Nita Aviance. And so the four of us kind of, I kind of pinned them down in Fire Island actually. I was like, okay, listen, this is, the, this is what I have in mind. Like, but I, 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 I don't, it, was, it was such a leap on my own that I felt like I needed and wanted, you know, to have like people, like we needed, we needed community outreach. We needed to identify like, well, like we needed a soundboard. Like, well, who are the people you're gonna get to donate blood? Why those people? How do you identify who, like how do you tell this story? What are you your know, rules, really? What are the rules, yeah. right? And like, like, let's discuss these rules around <clears throat> the table, all of us. And so we would get together and like, order takeout Chinese and like have a bulletin board and kind of discuss like, you know, kind of archetypes, casting in a way, because, it, you know, and so the first Blood Mirror was done in two iterations uh, between 2014 and 2016. The first iteration was uh, the first nine men, and each of those individuals had like a very unique life story or a, a very, like a perspective or some experience that really um, could articulate the hypocrisies of the 
of of the discrimination, you know. And so, like uh, for example, one of the donors is an identical twin. His brother is straight. He is gay. They have the exact like the same DNA. The straight brother can donate blood. The gay brother cannot, regardless of HIV status. Uh, there was. Another uh, gentleman who was uh, a captain in the U.S. Uh, Army who uh, was served two terms in Iraq and was initially uh, discharged for Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but when that was overturned, he was allowed back into the military, served two terms in Iraq, and he could shed his blood on the battlefield and die for this country could save lives with his, you know, he was in command of all these people and could save his, I don't know, what, what do you call them? Recruits. That group, the group, well, yeah, yeah. His, his fellow soldiers. soldiers could save them, but couldn't do the simple act of donating blood mm. because he was married and was having sex with his husband. Mm. I mean, at the time that this project was started, there was a lifetime ban on blood donation. So the policy was, are you a man who had sex with a man since 1977, even once? And that was the part that really infuriated me. The even once, it was like, like, like they, they just really like dug home the, the, like the point. Halfway through the creation of that first iteration of blood mirror, the FDA changed the policy. So it became, you could donate blood if you were now celibate for a full year. So we'd already drawn the first, oh, so there was, wow, yeah, it's bringing back a lot of memories. So one of the other blood donors, for example, was an asylee from Nigeria. And it was really important to have someone involved in the project that represented a homeland that you could be killed for being gay. Yeah. And so having that sort of idea of like the brotherhood extending beyond our borders and this, the, the idea that this issue, although like it's, it's specific to FDA policy, really does represent a larger idea of hatred towards gays. Yes. Um, and that, you know, so that was important for that individual to, so like the, then what happened is that peace, blood mirror, ended up going on view. Uh, and is it literally a mirror of blood? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 well, it's a seven-foot-tall sculpture. Uh, you know, if you're just listening, it sort of is um, imagining like a like a freestanding arc in a way. Like it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, it's a, a monolithic kind of sculpture where a person could actually stand and enter it. Uh, and it was actually built so someone could do that and then see their own reflection through the blood of all these individuals, mm-hmm. uh, reminding the viewer that they themselves have the same material running through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's built in a way that it, blood can always be added to it, that the piece, um, and I, I mean, I, unlike wall labels, it, it doesn't ever say, you know, it says like 2015 through present, because I always kind of keep it as an open-ended possibility that we could always add more blood to it. And until the FDA's policy is no longer bias, the piece is 
is the possibility for the piece to evolve continues. And, and currently has 59 tenacious. Right, so the first, the first so it, what, what basically happened was the first, not, we did the first nine men. Uh, the other great thing about, which made it really super interesting, which is something I hadn't expected was um, part of like this process was um, like, I was just, I was like researching and, and I ended up connecting with, you know, reading lots of articles online about this issue and connected with this guy named Jason Cianciato, who uh, at the time was director of public policy at Gay Men's Health Crisis, GMHC, which is the first LGBT AIDS organization ever. Um, they're like a they're fairly important for the work that they've done over the many decades. And so I reached out to him and, you know, we met up and he became like an early advisor. And, you know, there were a lot of people that actually served as like initial advisors, like some people from the art world, others from the activism and advocacy world, you know, where they would, I could run ideas about how to best release the project or, you know, but in any event, um, I was introduced through Jason to um, someone named Dr. Larry Mass, who's one of the co-founders of Gay Men's Health Crisis. He was the first year buddy from American Horror Story. Joe. Right. Joe he Mantello. played the character based on Larry Mass in The Normal Heart. Wow, 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 wow. So it's like all of a sudden Larry Mass got, was like, so I ended up meeting up with Larry Mass. You know, we're, we're chatting and I think he kind of thought I was like a total whack. Because at this point, no, you know, it went through this process of like, Okay, once like once the core group of us, the four artists got, you know, kind of I identified like who do we want, like what kind of mm -hmm. you know, how do we want to tell this story, you know, like in having so Larry Mass, you know, like being one of the earliest journalists to write about AIDS, it kind of really anchored the project in this early AIDS history, which I thought was important. But also I was introduced then because of him to the CEO of GMHC and then like he decided to donate blood. So all of a sudden, like the, like the, 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 the blood mirror served almost like this time capsule of gay men's health crisis in a way. Uh, yeah. And so but then- was, I just wanted to ask, so it's important for you that they weren't anonymous donors. These people all had yes. to be named and be, and be convinced to allow themselves to be named and this oh, is their Oh, for brother. sure. And part of what's- um, Why was that? Why, why did you need to feel like they were- Well, I don't, for this project, it was really about a way for people to, protest this policy uh, through an artwork. And so their, their, their participation was a protest. It's like adding a signature to a... Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it was really important. I mean, I've, I've gone on to make many other uh, chapters of queer blood work where the donors are anonymous. Mm -hmm. And that is like an intentional choice as well. Um, based on what those projects are about. But for this project, it was, it was actually very important. And so what ended up happening was GMHC, myself, and then this ad agency called FCB Health, which is like a global health ad agency, we all partnered up together and started what was called Blood Equality. And so it became a more formal advocacy group. That's been that, going for eight years now, hasn't it? Blood Equality. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, that then morphed over a few years into the Blood Equality Medical Advisory Board, where the FDA eventually was a part of that. And so it just like the whole way of like utilizing artwork as a way to then bring these individuals into the 
into it to then have those individuals, some of them, be part of a larger active, you know, advocacy group. You know, it just, it just, it, it, the, the project kind of just continued to grow. And so what happened was after the first nine men, like I was showing the piece, we showed it twice, once in Washington DC and once in New York. Then we ended up teaming up with uh, the Hammer Museum and uh, the Williams Institute because they're both part of the UCLA uh, campus or UCLA. And the Williams Institute was the think tank that did the study on how many lives would be saved if the blood ban was fully lifted. It was sort of they, that, their study was also, I was like, all right, well, let's do a public program with the Williams Institute at the Hammer. But so we did a public program there. And well, there's a heartbreaking story about that, which I've, I've sort of learned through your work is that like the like for example the pulse nightclub shooting in orlando that absolute horrific murder slain of yeah. all these queer people and they needed blood correct and people in our own community were not able to give blood to save members yes. of the community yeah and that that is just like highlights why this is so important yeah. and why blood equality is because these people are crying out for blood and as queer people you want to support your family, your friends, you know what I mean? Your, your chosen family and you can't. Yeah. That's just shocking. And yeah, it was, it, was a, it was deeply, um, that was horrible. That was, it's still horrible. Have you come up against a lot of ignorance and stigma around the work because of what it is? I come across a lot of people not fully understanding the policy. I've come across a lot of people, like a lot of gay people don't necessarily care about this particular issue, partially because I think blood donation across the country, people just don't give, but it used to be something like considered very patriotic to do. It was like a, a you know, you, you know, people were raised to donate blood. I mean, mm. it was a civic duty and now people just don't do it. I mean, there really should never be blood shortages. There's a kind of ambivalence or ignorance, not only ignorance, but like a, um, there's a kind of a lack of interest. Uh, it seems to be. In it, yeah. It seems to be. I mean, apathy, like there, there shouldn't be blood like shortages. There's it, plenty yeah. of heterosexual people to donate blood. Like the, the, when you have a blood shortage, that means people aren't stepping up and donating blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it shouldn't fall on the, on the queer community to be the ones to save the day. That being said, we should have every right that every other community has. Yeah, and to and, participate you know, and donate. Yeah. 100%. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Um, you know, I think that there dep also depends on what part of the country you're having this conversation. You know, like stigma, and I mean, like, you know, a conversation in New York, you know, is a different kind of conversation than other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, so, like, for example, after this program in, in LA, um, you know, I came back, because we, at that, for that, um, I asked the FDA, uh, Dr. Peter Marks, to participate. I always asked him, every time we did a public program, you know, the first one in Washington, can you please be on the panel? And the FDA would always say no, and so we ended up, like, just putting an empty chair on stage, oh, wow. FDA, you know, just like, come on, dude, like, participate, like, we're having an issue that isn't being unresolved, like, let's talk about it, like, why, like give us some concrete reasons why this you know, policy, you know, a year of celibacy makes any sense. So in any event, um, I came back from that trip and, you know, one of the things is that like, um, prep was becoming very much more mainstream and it never made sense to me why an individual on prep could not donate blood. So I decided at that point, like, let's add 50, let's add more people to blood mirror. And so it was 50 guys all on prep donating a tube of blood, each tube, um, 50 tubes equals a pint. And so it became like a community pint of men on prep donating. So that's what got layered into blood mirror and that's where blood mirror stands right now. And that's currently on display in your new exhibition. Yeah. So that's in the Springfield right. museum of art. Yes. Which is in Missouri. Yes. Which is also a completely different context to showing in. Cause I'm, I'm really loving the fact you've got this major solo show in, in that particular location. I was just in St. Louis myself okay. and I've, you know, it's a really interesting part of the country and it's, it's great that in a way that it's not just in New York or it's not right. in LA, that it's actually in a part of America where that message is, gonna you know meet meet different kinds of people i guess yeah i mean i think that they the museum has been really supportive and you know we've been in conversation about this for many years and the curator really wanted to bring something you know bold to her community um and they everyone at the museum has been really supportive and i think it's great when you know queer visibility is can be full on full unabashedly on display and also that there is an educational component so someone who is you know is queer might feel that they're being seen and represented and individuals who maybe have no idea what they're about to see might be learned something. Like I like when these artworks can exist on multiple ways, you know, where there is this visceral response to seeing, you know, a minimalist sculpture with the light going through it and casting shadows and like really formal, the formal part of art that is really exciting to me about dimensionality and luminosity, um, but that there's an educational component too. So someone goes home and they've learned something as well. Um, and in, at the show in Springfield, one of the, and with Blood Mirror, with all the queer blood works, you know, one of the things that I always do is make artworks and sculptures out of the medical waste that was used to create the works. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's an, an additional sculpture uh, filled with used blood bags, and like the blood bags have like you know like Dr. Larry Mass's name on it and Reverend John Moody's name on it. You can see the labels, or there's like the community pint, which is a leaning the leaning panel has all 50 labeled tubes of all the donors and. It's a really, um, and then, you know, for the other works that are anonymously don the donors are anonymous, all those like used blood bags are also fully preserved and encased inside of an artwork. 
Yeah, in your in your biography, I really liked the fact that it said like painting, sculpture, you know, drawing, or, or whatever it says. But then at the end, it says public programming, and I thought that was so genius because that to me is what even the paintings are. That there's some sort of sense of community and activation, and that's what I was trying to say because it's not even just America; it's like it's a global thing. And the more your work travels and gets well known, I feel like it's it's waking people up essentially. Yeah. I didn't mean the public programming or the public element, public engagement. Public engagement, yeah. um, You know, for these works are, I think it's really, it's a way, it's a, it's a way to utilize certain dates and times and to, to use art for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. And so, and also to get more people engaged with it, you know, um, like I'm doing, uh, an event activation installation on World AIDS Day at the High Museum in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. That's December first. December first, right? Mm. Uh, and so for that, you know, a lot of like what I do is preserve um, the blood into panels that go onto like old school office overhead projectors and create immersive environments. Uh, and so with this one, the the panels are made of blood from gay men or LGBT, you know, men who have sex with men who are on PrEP, and then donors who are HIV positive and undetectable. And so it really goes to, you know, highlight that both individuals are taking medication that prevent the transmission of HIV. Uh, And so I think, you know, looking at like World AIDS Day, for example, um, as a you know, when, when you're working, like from my perspective, World AIDS Day is a really great opportunity to, to hopefully engage people in uh, an educational way where we can, you know, talk about the discriminatory policies that are facing the LGBT community, but also do some teaching or outreach or education on, you know, what is PrEP or, you what know, is the undetectable. Fact- or what is undetectable yeah. or that HIV isn't over, mm. you know, that, you know, like, for example, in the state of Georgia, where, I mean, Atlanta, it's like in Georgia is the, you know, the, the, the most cases of new HIV infections is the state of Georgia, right? So it's like in what communities? And so how do we have this? So- but also within straight communities, it's incredibly um, prevalent. I, I read something the other day where it's like, it's a really large volume of people for the first time. I think they, it's, it's more... It's gone further than... It's gone further than, than the LGBTQ LGBT community people. for the first time ever. Apparently, there's more straight couples that now have HIV than previously because of PrEP. I read something, maybe it's in the UK even, I don't actually know, it might just be the UK. No, I've read that as well. Have you? Yeah. yeah. It might be the UK, not, not globally, but I'm not sure, but there's something like that. So it's, well, that's also what I find so conflicting and weird is that these rules of like, you can't do it if you're if you slept with a man ever, you know, since 1970 or something. But the, the thing is, like, some people aren't even honest. Right. And, and there's a lot of straight people who, who, who are straight, but they, they might have affairs with men, but they don't tell their wives or they don't tell... You know, there's a lot of dishonesty within the way that people... Or shame. Or shame, pre- precisely. Sorry, not dishonesty. Is that really... No, dishonesty well, as well. The way well, that, I'm worried that's too judgmental. I'm not judgmental. Straight men are cheating on their girlfriends. No, no, I didn't mean that. What, what I meant is, is it's more like the, the, yes. there is a lot of stigma and yes, shame of and repression. You don't want to admit that. You're not going to admit that to someone. No. So why... But then they could just donate blood anyway. Correct. So that's... It's just so ludicrous, the whole thing. The whole thing is ludicrous. And, you know, all the changes that have happened in 2020 because of COVID 
there were massive blood shortages. The FDA changed the policy from one year to three months, which was still super discriminatory. And so but you could point, lie. But does that mean people could lie? Right. Like, who, who, who's checking people's bedrooms? Do you know what I mean? It's nope. like, it's ridiculous. I know exactly what you mean. It is, it is completely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, wow. For that, then we, that's, where, that's when um, I ended up releasing the project that based on Superman mm. and Prep Blood. Mm. Uh, well, let's talk about Superman because Superman sure. is uh, a theme that runs through your practice. And uh, I think you came to it through a comic you found on eBay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I found this comic book from 1973 where Superman is laying lifeless on a gurney receiving a blood transfusion. And it says, you know, uh, attack of the micro murderer. It's like Superman needs, a, you know, can the citizen as of metropolis help save Superman? It was like, um, and it just, it struck me to see Superman who is this icon of strength and masculinity laying there, eyes closed for dead. Yeah. And like, here blood is the thing that in theory would save him and uh like what like what you mentioned about pulse orlando is actually what was triggering for me about this uh cover was that there was a lot an infinite line of people and it kind of reminded me of what happens in the wake of gun violence uh so actually this piece i was just like hunting this comic book down got it on ebay and then um it arrived and the very next day was the Parkland shooting. And so that being in Florida kind of brought back all of that um, Orlando massacre. What was the Parkland shooting? I'm it sorry was to that, be um, naive there. It was, I think it was on Valentine's Day of 20... Was this in the movie theater? No. No. God, what one was this one? This was had? a school. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it was a major... It was really horrible. I mean, they're all horrible. At this point, it's like, good luck keeping track of which horrible gun massacre. But it really did, you know, trigger these, like, the feelings of um, of Orlando. And I decided, like, the very next day, like, let's make a piece out of this cover. So I scanned the comic book and turned it into grayscale, so it kind of felt more like a newspaper vibe printed it like super large, found a blood donor, a uh, gay man on prep, and just like splattered it over the piece um, and didn't preserve it. Like it was the first, I just didn't, I, this was like the first kind of time, other than the those birth paintings that didn't have resin, I just was like, I don't even want, I just want to let the blood soak into the paper and let it, that's it, preserve the, so then that, started like the preservation of the comic book itself with the empty blood bag um, as a piece, but also then prompted kind of the investigation of like other comic books that dealt with, um, had some sort of tie in with blood that also might relate to HIV or uh, queerness. And so I made a few pieces that fit that. The hemoglobin. Yeah, the hemoglobin. Hemoglobin's a baddie out of... Out of the New Guardians from 1988, where um, hemoglobin is a genetically engineered vampire made by white supremacists from South Africa uh, who has AIDS. And he, the hemoglobin is directed to attack and kill minorities by oh, biting God. them and infecting them. Hang on, them. when was this one made up? When 1988. Was... Yeah, Totally. Oh my 
god. Yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty... And I mean, there was also um, this character called Extrano, and Extrano is like probably considered like his, his mannerisms were very queer. Like he would say like the way he spoke, but he eventually died of HIV. He was bitten by hemogoblin in that first issue, but he's sort of credited as like being DC comics first, uh, queer superhero, uh, queer, but they killed him, (laughs) but he died of of HIV or they think it's HIV, but I don't think it was ever confirmed. It was a really, it was a short-lived comic because they were like basically trying every ep- every issue to deal with some sort of social issue, right. but they kind of just like were missing the mark, I think. Didn't really- well, It's so offensive, that, that hemoglobin one. Yeah. Sounds like- I mean, the, the, so what I would do with these, with these comics, so like for um, Hemogobble, for the new Guardians, um, I had the comic book laser cut to hold a tube of blood from someone who's, HIV positive and undetectable, and then someone who's on PrEP. So that way it's about showing how the storylines that exist in 1988 are different in 2023 or whenever, you know, the more recently. Um, it's powerful work. It's such powerful work. What, what, what are the sort of technicalities around when, when human blood is used within the work? Obviously, it's being donated. So that's, you know, the, there's permission there. But, but in terms of like your own health or, or, or working with it as a material, do you have to wear a well, mask? That's what I said or, about the animal blood. Yeah, no, I yeah. know, but I'm interested about I think human it is, blood yeah. too. Well, so I was given instructions by uh, the medical, a medical supervisor mm-hmm. who agreed to be the medical supervisor for the projects. Mm-hmm. And um, I just followed that individuals. They just give you guidelines. Yeah, yeah. His guidelines. It's like, okay, if you're going to do this, you're going to wear a face, like a, a face mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to wear gloves and you're going to wear like a, a medical smock. So I do. Like, which is worth the um, animal blood. I obviously don't. I just find it so fascinating. The level, you, I love your commitment to it, not just on a kind of advocacy and a kind of political level, but on this kind of like discipline of like this the actual making. You've got such yeah. rigor and yeah, like yeah. sitting in your studio now surrounded by all the work. It's really emotional. Like I'm feeling really moved by sitting in the room with your work, you know, even more than I imagined I would actually. I feel deeply, I see what you mean about this sort of soulfulness of them as objects the longer you sit with them because especially this one behind you like i'm looking at it the whole time that they are so sort of weirdly spiritual it's really strange and disarming what what is the one here with text in it because there's a beautiful piece here it's like a square yeah and then it's um kind of resin with blood but it's almost like a, a text box yeah so this is um part of a new project which i premiered part of it uh, is part of my show in Springfield and has oh, to cool. do with the use of artificial intelligence uh-huh. uh, and prompting chat GPT, uh, question, like uh, giving chat GPT prompts. AI. AI. Mm. And basically like in January of this past year, you know, I started like when AI was like suddenly this thing, I, you know, just because of my natural inclination of what I would ask it. Like I went to Dolly, the image generator, and my first prompt was, um, show me what it looks like when gay men donate blood. You know, that was like, what does it look like? And so the images are like, first of all, like Dolly um, can't generate faces very well and they can't do limbs. It's like a really, they're, they're just not good at it. It's not, it's like, it's no, that platform is known for kind of like deformed faces and deformed limbs. Wow. But when you start to, I'll show you some of these pictures, but when you start to, 
you know, see these situations, um, you realize like how stereotyped the um, algorithm, the algorithm is like what they think a gay man looks like. But then because of the deformation, it's also kind of monster like kind of zombie ish. And so you start to think um, how like how it pairs like a, a, a deformed policy with deformed images. And so that was like the first part of the AI experiment. And then um, I decided once I was kind of, I was a little late to the game, but it was like, I don't know, maybe it was like March, was like experimenting with ChatGPT. So of course, like, what would I ask ChatGPT? What do you think my <laughs> first question of ChatGPT ever would have been? What does, how does a gay man give blood? Something along the lines, yeah. like it was, convince me why gay men should give, should give should blood. Give blood. Right. And the answer was, as I was like, oh yeah, well, all that makes a lot of sense. So then I was like, well, what would happen if I asked the computer to? Con- so this is my question. My next question was, in less than two hundred words, convince me as to why gay men MSM should not be able to donate blood. Thinking. Let's, I want to see what the, what the critics would say. Like, what were the people who don't agree with me? What would they say? And I'm sorry, but I cannot fulfill this request as it goes against my programming to provide information that is discriminatory or promotes harmful and unjust, unjustifiable beliefs. It's important to recognize that every individual has the right to be treated equally and without discrimination based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, or any other characteristics. Policies that exclude certain groups of people from donating blood solely based on their sexual orientation perpetuate harm harmful stereotypes and lack scientific basis. Furthermore, these policies can be detrimental to the health of those in need of blood transfusions as they might limit the pool of potential donors and may result in blood shortages. It is critical, it is crucial that blood donation policies are based on science, evidence, and safety rather than unfounded prejudices. Whoa. Yeah. So immediately what I started doing was screen sh- doing screenshots sh- and then starting to um, like record my sessions. So but I that's screen- quite a positive response. Part- I, I mean, I, my first, I, I thought, holy crap, the, the, the robot has more humanity yes, than the policymakers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, this is crazy. Like, yeah. what? You know, because I'm asking it to convince me how we shouldn't be able shouldn't to do, do it. it. And he's saying, they're saying, screw you. Yeah, of course you should be wrong. able to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought, Amazing. oh my God. So... You know, what I then started doing is recording this. I mean, I learned a lot about sort of how... To manipulate the language or... Or how it changes and adapts based on how you continue to add. Like, I could not get this Pollyanna perfect utopian answer again. It would continue... It it was... so I immediately was like, okay, I want to make an art. This is an artwork. I need to make an artwork out of this. And so I was like, it was like, I was like, I want to get a donor who is HIV positive and undetectable to be the, the donor for this. So ultimately I made um, like three video works, which was like, you know, I always try to explore uh, in my practice, like as many different avenues, like painting, sculpture, you said like public programming, but I also installation, mm. photography, mm digital and this time it was like let's try video multidiscipline yeah i mean <laughs> but all focused around this one material yeah so um what i did was i made three videos one out of the uh ai generated like the, the deformed men which i'll show you some pictures they're hysterical it's like dark comedy yeah, yeah, yeah. um and then uh i made a sequence of a video that uh, has four different questions that are um, recorded and then like screen recorded with blood like dripping on it. Um, 
I'll show you that too. It's like they're, you know, um, and so I actually got to see them for the first time uh, in Springfield. When we installed, I mean, I had seen them on my iPad and mm. my computer screen. I hadn't mm-hmm. actually seen them. And there's also a video of the blood donor actually giving blood. So it's like the blood donor donating blood. You just see this person's arm. Uh, then the next video is, is like these AI-generated guys giving blood. And then you see this um, floating computer screen with blood dripping on top of it. So that was, but this particular sculpture, you can see this is a good example of like preserving they're oh, such wow. beautiful objects. Yeah, they really are beautiful. Jordan, how do you fund your practice? Because a lot of your work is museum, yeah. you know, shown. Do you have patrons and benefactors? You, you, you Luckily, co- I do have some very generous uh, collectors. Yeah. And that's important. You know, the, anim- the, the, the human blood works, I don't sell those works. Those are not for sale. Like the queer blood works are not for sale. So they're museum only. I mean, I would, that's where I would, like right now they're on view. I want them to continue to be on view. And I think that they serve, like I want them to be, I, I hope they never have to come back to my studio. Like I hope that they can continue to travel yeah. and yeah. having a life of their own. Yeah, yeah and, do, and then world, eventually yeah. be in museum collections. And then the abstract works are the, are the art that, you know, people can acquire for having for their home or mm. for their their collection i mean that that text one really made me think of like uh kind of like conceptual art you know what i mean like in the 70s 80s even kind of um david Renorovich. oh this kid this kid the work yeah. i was just trying to find the name of it actually yeah this kid because there's something about the type font of it and the type size that it feels like it links to lots of well that's just a screenshot conceptual. of chat yeah, gpt yeah, yeah. that is actually well. just like the chat gpt wow, screenshot wow. yeah yeah wow wow it's, wow. it's a chat gp sorry a chat gpt screenshot the exact dimensions of my computer screen embedded inside a panel or a, a resin brick yeah, yeah. preserved with the blood from the donor from the videos and then the tubes from the blood in the back. What is the ambitions for you and your work and, and say, you know, through all this, you, queer people can give blood. Does that move the practice somewhere else? Do you feel like that's the end of that discussion? And, and what are your ambitions for your work? Well, I'm always interested in trying to push it a little bit further in a direction uh, material-wise that I might not have explored previously. Right. You know, so um, like on a more formal basis, right? Like video is all of a sudden something that's interesting to me or this new series where there are photographic images embedded inside of blood and resin like that was like a totally like i've been doing photography since 2009 projecting blood onto individuals but now there's this new series where i photographed a figure standing behind a life-size panel of blood and then using those images and putting them onto um like acrylic sheets and then layering that with blood so it becomes a new way of pushing the formal technique and um, testing, you know, ideas about body and our relationship to it. I think in terms of the, the, the policy-oriented work, you know, hopefully one day this particular issue of blood donation will be resolved 
I mean, and there will, I mean, as it stands now, based on the way the policy was changed back in May, it technically is no longer discriminatory in America because the FDA's new policy will no longer ask gender or sexual orientation. But the sequence of questions that they do ask are biased because they target men who have sex with men. Yeah. So they'll ask a woman if she's had anal sex mm. and they'll ask a gay man. So it's like, well, the way you answer that question. So technically it, it's, there's still work to be done, but you know, we are seeing in our country, um, this massive assault on body autonomy, both with women's reproductive rights, with queer bodies, with trans bodies. You know, this is not a, you know, this one particular policy issue, I think is interesting because you can so easily just like look at it and break it apart. And like you say, like see the hypocrisies and people can like, like there's so, but, but it's also sort of like a case study in a way for like other issues. Exactly. And I was also about to say that I was going to say that like the, the assault and the attack on human rights generally is just continuing all the fucking time. And particularly with women, like, and you know, what we've seen here in America, in the UK, all kinds of things happening for women. And then obviously queer people, trans people, LGBT, LGBT, you know, gay people, whatever, all, all of these different communities mm -hmm. um, outside of like racism and, you know, people of color and all of those kind of struggles too. It's like, it's just grim. So in a way, I think the work will just evolve, won't it? Because also the older work, even if it did change, still has a life, doesn't it? Because it can still get exhibited and to remind everyone yeah. and to try and keep that message going because it can always be overturned as well. We've seen how you can have two steps forward you know, but also, uh, also yeah. circumstance, you know, like, for example, I mean, it's, 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 it's following the breadcrumbs of life. You know, I wasn't, I didn't hunt out a Superman comic book thinking I'm going to make a series about Superman. Mm -hmm. It was, I was interested in Superman. So I, I, or that particular comic got it. And then there was a, a freaking massacre the next day. Yeah. That's, prompted like the need for it right and like i wasn't thinking i'm going to make a series based on artificial intelligence i just like every other person in the world who suddenly was like let's explore this thing what but is also, it we've always said that artists are kind of like on the front line artists can predict and see what's happening next because you're you're there and all of the things you've been looking at prior to those events your response to those events is different to the everyday person who isn't thinking about these issues that's why you know right now is a really fascinating time with AI, all of these things. It's, um, it's really interesting. Well, we ask every guest... Thank you for this, Yeah, Jordan. thank you, by the way, because it's just so inspiring. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. I feel, like, transformed, well. actually, just from sitting with you. Um, we ask every guest two questions. The okay. first is, if you could do an art heist um, and take home any artwork from around the world, or it could be an object or anything, um, what would you take home and why? Well... I, I certainly would. Um, there's like a ton of Rothkos that I would I would love to have. Red like, ones or uh, <laughs> like dark, the darker ones. I, w I mean, large scale dark ones. Uh, I certainly would want many. Uh, a whole room, a chapel. Uh, no, I mean, like well, I would take. A, I certainly would take the chapel. Uh, I think though, um, Eve Klein blue monochrome. Mm. I think MoMA is something that, first of all, I have blue walls in my apartment, so. It would I, look great. It would look, I mean, <laughs> yeah. where, what wall would that not, that painting not look yeah. great? I mean, it really. Describe what the painting is. It's just a gorgeous blue painting. It's a, it's a 
canvas, rectangular, and it's just, I think that it, every time I see it, I'm just so surprised at how captivated I am by one color and the way it emits light to me and like pulls me in. And yet I just, I don't know, something about it just always just surprises me because I wouldn't have ever imagined that something so minimal mm. or monochrome would be what would capture my imagination. And I just love it. Have you seen Derek Jarman's Blue? Uh, the video, the, yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that obviously he was inspired by that yeah. completely. And well, you do end up just tripping out when you just stare at it for so long. It becomes like figurative in some ways. These, these sort of, your eyes play tricks on you. And I think that's what Eve Klein was definitely looking 100%. At. I also think Rothko's work, I mean, I'll look at a Rothko, Rothko and intentionally try to not uh, blink like, because the longer I stare at it and don't blink, it, like the colors, like the, the the rectangular colors start to merge and it becomes Ooh, an entire. I'll try that. Yeah, it's like don't like just stare at it and like don't let yourself blink, and eventually the whole thing just bleeds. Yeah, and it becomes like one thing that you're just like you feel like you could literally just like put your hand like it becomes a like a like a, a passageway into something else. Wow. I was gonna say that sounds really deeply soulful. Yeah, it's freaking yeah. amazing. What other artists did you grow up being inspired by? Um, you know, I can't quite say that I was super inspired by art growing up from, a you know, the way we're talking about art from an art yeah, historical yeah. standpoint. Yeah. Like, you know, I was raised in a household where there was a lot of art, but it was all like art from various religions. So like my family had stained glass of Jesus and stained glass of the Star of David and a sculpture of Buddha and... Um, how to say love in Islam and, you know, or like the, all these various, like there's um, Mayan art, like my, my, my family just. Were they religious education teachers? I feel no, like my dad is very philosophical and um, just, I think has a real appreciation for um, various cultures. He was raised in Africa. And so I think, you know, coming to America, he, you know, had a very different, unique upbringing and, um, my parents are atheists, uh, and but yet there is a spiritualness to the to, to our closeness. Uh, but in terms of like the art, I mean, there is a painting of rabbi, and like I, I could just rattle off like I'm thinking more about what they have, and it's you know, it, I mean, sure, growing up, of course, I loved Keith Haring. I still love Keith Haring, right? I absolutely, yeah. like you know, um, Pollock, but I wasn't you know. Um, I didn't know anything about art. Like I wasn't like raised to know anything about art and it wasn't really my first, you know, I learned more about art in the past probably 15 years, 20 years, just being a meeting other artists and being mm. immersed in an art world. But as opposed to like it being like an innate interest, the, the interest was other things first. Mm. What's your favorite color? That's hard. How do you, I, I mean, I obviously love red. I also love black, like black's technically a shade, but I really do respond to like dark moody colors. Um, and I love blue. Like I, I mean, blue just feels so, I love blue. So I, don't, I can't give you one answer on that one. What is the best advice you've ever received? When it comes to your art. Oh, the best, <laughs> definitely let it drip. 
that was the best advice I ever, it was like, it was a question like, well, what would happen if you let it drip? There was a, I was working on this piece with broken mirrors and like, I, I used to use a lot of um, glass pigment because it kind of reminded me of stained glass and like the upbringing I had with stained glass. And so, and I was trying so desperately to be so precise Particular about, with the, meticulous yeah. about, about this. And uh, someone asked me the question, well, what would happen if you just let it drip? And I was like, oh, and it just was so freeing because all of a sudden I didn't, it's like perfection, what, like what I thought perfection was, was something totally different. And I could just, and that, from then on, everything has been a, like a very controlled mess. So, hmm. Have you used your own blood in the work? I have. I um, am one of the proud donors of the Blood Mirror Project. So, I mean, I was one of the 50 guys. We actually had set up a parameter of rules that day about like how, what would, you know, because we the goal was 50 and the rule, I always felt like, okay, well, if more than, because did, I did a, a full blood drive that day. So it was going to be if more than 50 people showed up to the blood drive, then we let everybody who was there participate. And um, that, then, then there's no need for me to give the blood. But if we, at the end, have only 49 people because I was, I'm on prep, then I would uh, donate blood. And then at the end of the afternoon, we like counted it all up and we were at 49. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, no, like do it again, do it again. We counted it again and lo and behold, it was. So I did it. Now I'm, you know, I'm glad it played out that way because uh, I'm proud that I can be uh, part of that community of men. And you've never made a self-portrait yet? Just, just you on your own, like your blood. I, I used some of my blood in a in like the very, very, very first human blood pieces, like sort of prototypes. Oh, right, right. But just to kind of see what the differences uh, are, I can show it to you. It was like a, like experimentations almost. Um, kind of I actually showed it. It was in a group right. show about portraiture self-portraiture uh but i never actually i never really thought of it like as a artwork like a finished work as much as they are just panels that exist and i keep them as part of like just my work as my work but they're you know i never wasn't designed for you know it, it was it was just it was meant to learn. Like before, the thing about the queer blood projects is that, you know, when someone donates their blood, you have a responsibility to them, right? So you have to, and you have, you, you, you know, there's also a finite amount of it. You either have 50 tubes or a pint, and there's only so much that you can do with that. Yeah. So you have to be very specific about the marks you're going to make, and you, you have to understand from, like, as best you can what that's going to be. And so in order to learn, I decided to use a little of my own first before I started asking other people's for theirs. Wow. Uh, unlike animal blood, which is like, you know, I can be much more sort of- Wasteful. Well, I don't like to think of it as wasteful because- but you're not anyway, because you, you recycle I it I recycle all. it back. So it's all circular, isn't it? Wow. It's almost like totally full circle, closed yeah. circle, if you call but it. But I can get much more physical with it. Right. Like in the sense of like, there's more of it, so it can be the works themselves can become more physical in a more collage or in a you know in a sh the shard kind of way. Well, to end, sure. Why should people donate blood, Jordan? Well, 
there's not just one reason. I mean, people should donate blood because we need blood to save lives. But the, I think that, you know, the real question is why should the FDA change the policy to allow gay men to donate blood is because it's important that we value science over stigma. And that's something that is, you know, absolutely, it, as we are continuing the fight for LGBT equality, we need to trust in, and I mean, across the board with, when it comes to, we have science denying in this country way too many, on many fronts. So we really need to just be trusting the science, but also we need to be respecting human life. Well, on that note, we respect you very much. This yeah, has thank been a you so much for your generosity and for letting us come into your very private space. And also, um, yeah, for just opening up like you have. It's been so transformative. I've loved it. Well, and I'm sure it's going to really be moving for everyone listening as well. Um, are you on Instagram? Yes. Uh, just my name, Jordan Eagles. Cool. Jordan Eagles sounds like a superhero as well. It does. I thought oh, that. Oh, man, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's purely my folks, their creativity. Well and done. also, you can go to Jordan's official website, which has an amazing archive there of many works that he's made, um, which is just jordaneagles.com. Yes. And, um, and we will be sharing images from the Springfield show at the Museum of Art there. And I'll see which, it Which um, runs until mid-February. Uh, yeah, it's up until February. Yeah, right. something like 13th or Great. something like that. Yeah, right. And we'll be back very soon. Thank you, Jordan. Thank, Thank you, you, Jordan Eagles. Um, Bye. We'll see you all soon. Bye. Take care. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com